What? 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 I know how we can run everybody out of Rock Ridge. How? We'll kill the firstborn male child in every household. Too Jewish. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Yair Rosenberg, creator and editor of the Deep Shtetl newsletter for The Atlantic magazine, prominent journalist and musician. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the guests and hosts on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. I've really enjoyed teaching a Musar class the last couple of months. This is the second extended Musar group I've led the last few years. And I have to say, I continue to find the experience fulfilling and enjoyable. Musar is a Jewish approach to personal ethics, but it is just as much about self-awareness and growth as it is about ethics. Of course, all of Judaism can certainly be understood to be ethically oriented, and the entirety of our tradition should move each of us towards personal growth. But the specific notion that we should explore our own personal approach to living well and how we implement those ideas, well, that's nearly unique to the Musar experience. That is, we're not just supposed to learn what the mitzvot, the commandments are that we must observe in order to be a good person, not simply be satisfied to say we are doing tzedakah and working to do tikkun olam, repairing the world, or even that we have to chat with a therapist and see how we might be happier. But instead, Musar says, we can explore how our own attitudes, feelings, and motivations in a variety of ways impact our lives, impact the people around us, our whole society, the world. Well, that's an approach unique to Musar. Judaism is about much more than rituals, holidays, and traditions, of course, or even prayer, study, and charity. It can be. Perhaps it should be a religion of self-healing that develops better people. The way this works is that the Musar tradition highlights a series of human characteristics called midot that range from simplicity to kindness to courage. We study Jewish and other teachings together on each midah, each characteristic. Then, in the class, we talk as a group about these ideas and their practical applications and limits in our own lives. After that, we break into small groups, work through these real-life scenarios and experiences to see how we really do feel about these ideas and how we can change our approach. And finally, we meet again as a full group and share what we've learned. It's always been an incredibly fulfilling class to teach and share in. And last week, in our Musar group, we actually explored a midah, a characteristic I personally find very challenging indeed, simplicity. In fact, you could make a pretty good case that in many areas, Judaism strives not for simplicity, but complexity. Okay, 
we only have one God in Judaism. Nothing can really be simpler than that central, powerful idea, can it? But in so many other areas, Jewish thought and practice get mighty complex. I suppose it would be fair to say about me that I often find ways to make simple things complicated and much more rarely find ways to make complex things simple. My mother used to say, you definitely found the hardest way to do that, didn't you? Of course, when you dig deep into Musar and the Midot, the characteristics that are explored, you discover that even the greatest of these, generosity, openness, patience, peace, and so on, always have to be balanced by similarly powerful, quite different characteristics. You can become too generous, too open, too patient, and I suppose certainly too simple. Still, the very exploration of each of these and other midot, the characteristics, helps me at the least, and hopefully my students too, to become sensitized to becoming a better, more aware, more caring person. I have taught many other Jewish subjects. I probably teach eight different Jewish classes weekly now, and I perhaps enjoy teaching mysticism the most, but Musar is becoming a favorite. It's study that everybody can benefit from. I wish our political leaders would explore Musar before they create those awful election ads we are subjected to constantly these days. A little Musar would be a great curative for those, wouldn't it? We all could gain a little bit from some self-exploration and emphasis on personal ethics. In any case, to play us in this morning, here's a setting from our guest this morning's new recording. Yair Rosenberg's Shabbat song, Yadid Nefesh, Beloved of My Soul, please spread over me, God, the shelter of your peace. Yadid Nefesh, Avarachaman, Meshoch Avdecha, El Ritzonecha. Yarut Avdecha Kimoaya Yishtachave El Muladarecha Yerabo Yididotecha Minofetsuf That was Yair Rosenberg from his new recording, singing Yadid Nefesh. By the way, you can hear those same words this very Friday night at services at 6.30 p.m. at my own congregation, Beit Simcha, in person or on Facebook. We're at a new location, but same prayers. (laughs) Just saying.
Our guest this morning, journalist and now recording artist, Yair Rosenberg, will explain what's different about writing for The Atlantic from his previous work as a journalist for Tablet and many other Jewish publications, and what brought him to record his new album of Jewish music. Meet the creator of the Deep Shtetl newsletter for The Atlantic when we return in a moment here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish our guests this morning. Yair Rosenberg writes the Deep Shtetl newsletter for The Atlantic. Those are words I never thought I could ever put in the same sentence before. He was previously a senior writer at Tablet Magazine, has written for a variety of major publications, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, won a variety of awards for his journalism, and has a new album of Jewish music out. Other than that, he hardly does anything. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Hi, thank you for having me. So, um, look, The Atlantic has been around a long time. I guess I never would have associated it with something called Deep Shtetl. Could you tell us about the evolution of that? Sure. Uh, so, The Atlantic recently decided, well, now it's after so recent, but The Atlantic around a year ago, um, launched a newsletter project where they brought in uh, distinct individual voices uh, that they wanted to add to their website um, and sort of cultivate communities around uh, those writers. And to their credit, they brought in a very wide array of people from very different backgrounds. Um, and my newsletter obviously comes uh, from a Jewish perspective. It's not so much for the Jews as from the Jews and using the thousands of years of Jewish texts and experiences uh, to address contemporary concerns. Um, and then there are other newsletter writers who are dealing with pop culture or coming from uh, a Christian background. Um, it's a real wide array. And uh, what's really wonderful is that I basically get to talk about these things that fascinate me uh, and discover how many people, Jewish or not, find them helpful and instructive in their own lives. It, it is really, a, it's a great uh, newsletter. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's entertaining. It's interesting. Um, you were at the Tablet before, which is another very interesting Jewish publication. Uh, do you feel like you have sort of more freedom with this newsletter, or is it similar work? So overall, it's, I would say, similar work, um, but with slightly different audiences, because when you write for a publication like Tablet, the majority of your readers are Jewish and a significant minority are not. And then when you go to the Atlantic, that flips. Um, and that changes subtly uh, the sorts of things you need to explain to your readers and the sort of background you can and can't assume that people are bringing to your writing. But I'm covering the exact same topics and telling pretty much the same story. Um, and, uh, you know, I really, because today also on the internet, of course, uh, everyone can read everything. Things are not as siloed as you might think. And you never know who's coming across your stuff. So I always assumed I was writing for the widest possible audience, no matter where I was writing. Uh, it, it's a great point. I mean, people do a search, they find something, they keep, you know, heading down that rabbit hole and they find more and more things. Do, do you think like Jewish culture, literature, thought has become more mainstream of late? So I don't know if it's become more mainstream. I do think 
that there's an increasing openness in general for people to seek out and learn from different traditions um, and different um, backgrounds than their own. Because uh, the internet has facilitated our ability to encounter those things. And certainly I myself, when we talk about the music album, for example, I'm influenced by musical traditions that are outside the Jewish tradition. Sure. Uh, in addition to, of course, many Jewish traditions. And one of the things that facilitated that was the internet, which enabled me to discover artists um, and music that I otherwise wouldn't have found. And I think certainly some, that's how some people find their way to my music uh, and same how people find their way to my journalism which is that they have this curiosity uh, about, say, Jewish people. But there aren't very many of us, and it's not so easy to find one unless you're living, say, on one of the coasts in the United States or you happen to be in Israel. And so I am often that address. I often find myself in the position of being the way that people access that stuff. And that, that's a, a heavy response. You are, you are the, the conduit to Judaism for all of the the internet. I mean, that that's a powerful role. Yeah. And you have to be very honest when you do something like that, because uh, I've written the, to my readers, I am not the Jewish Pope. There are a lot of Jews who disagree <laughs> about many things. And so you have to be very careful to explain those sorts of divisions and do it fairly uh, so that people will get an accurate impression uh, of what you can and can't tell them and what is and isn't definitive. Um, and that's something I think very seriously. We will talk much more with Yair Rosenberg, who is the creator and author of the Deep Shtetl newsletter and who has a very interesting album of Jewish music. We'll talk much more about that and hear some of that when we come back in a moment on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina foothills, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this fall. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org for more information, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary. Call 520-276-5675 for more information. Religious school is going for school-aged children and grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation, and teen programs in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Join us in person Friday night or Saturday morning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org for more information, or you can come Friday night on our Facebook page, Shabbat Evening Celebration Services, every week or at 6.30 p.m. Shabbat Morning Services start at 10 a.m. Torah Study is first at 9 o'clock, all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can access those by going to our website or emailing me, rabbi at beitsimchatucson.org. 
Our wonderful religious school and bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah programs are available in blended format too. Some students live, some on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, our religious school and Torah Tikes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation and high school programs, and rich array of adult education academy courses taught in blended format too. All of our services in person and on Facebook, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675, that's 276-5675. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Arizona and its exciting beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, Kvetch or Ekfell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through our website, 2JewishRadio.com, streaming us from there or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store's very popular podcast or Spotify. Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 175,000 downloads on Podbean. Post a rating. Review to Jewish, please, wherever you listen to our podcast. Those comments certainly help. Well, this week in the Torah, we'll chant the portion of Lech Lecha, which includes the call to Abram, Avram, the first Jew, and the great mitzvah, the commandment to circumcise Brit Milah, longest practiced Jewish act in all of history. There's a wonderful medieval Sephardic song about Brit Milah, the circumcision of Avram, Abraham, eventually to be known as Avraham. The song is called Quando el Renimrod. It includes many fabulous anachronisms in its lyrics. First of all, a Jewish quarter existing in the time of King Nimrod of Ur. Impossible when the song is about the birth and circumcision of the first Jew in history, who hasn't yet even been called by God to be a monotheist. Then, in Quando el Rey, we have a moel, a mohel, a ritual circumciser, not yet an actual function in Abraham's time, of course. And then there's a star rising above the birthplace of Abraham. Never heard of that in any other religious tradition, have you? And so on. Quando el Rey Nimrod is a delightful song. I've had the pleasure of performing it many times. The, the song, not circumcision. Miraba en el cielo y en la estrellería Figura santa en la judería Que había de nacer Abraham Marino Abraham Marino, Padre querido Padre bendito, luz de Israel Abraham Marino, Padre querido Padre Padre 
That was Quando El Rey for the week in which we will read in the Torah the commandment of circumcision, Brit Milah, in Lech Lecha. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. I was teaching a class in introductory Judaism of all things and started covering Jewish theology and made the point to my class that all of the modern movements of Judaism, Reform Judaism, Modern Orthodoxy, Conservative Judaism, all originated in a fairly small geographic area of what today is Germany. Uh, within about 20 or 30 years of the 19th century. And, you know, it's quite fascinating. Like, how did, why did this community become the incubator of all of these modern movements? But, uh, of course, if you say, oh, it was German Jews, well, it's automatically more complicated than that, isn't it? Absolutely. And without wanting to be a nitpicker, let me say that you don't mention in these movements, and it has nothing to do with Germany, things like Chabad and various other strains of Hasidut, or well, I don't think they're pre-modern movements the using non, modern techniques. So the non, saying that they're the non-Ashkenazic world, which is an important part of the Jewish people that we often don't think about. Yeah, I guess I would say that they never had that sort of oh emancipation. Let's adopt modernity Haskalah. into our practice. Yeah, there's no Haskalah, and there's no need for the changes that became um, so essential for Jews living in emancipated situations. They weren't really emancipated in Russia. They weren't emancipated in uh, the Arab world to speak of. And where they were, the opportunities for assimilation became much greater and accelerated rapidly. Right. And as a response to that, I think a lot of the modern movements that you're referring to emerged as a response to the like limitless opportunities for assimilation. A- absolutely. New ways of being Jewish. Yeah, but, I mean, I, I had a professor used to say, um, the Jews didn't walk out of the ghetto when the walls came down, they ran. Right. But, you know, in the Melachs of North Africa, that wasn't so possible. In the Shtetlach of Eastern Europe and the Pale of Settlement, not so much. 
I mean, we'll, we'll circle back to the question of the incubation of all these movements in Germany in a fairly small area. I want to point out right now that it was not then Germany. Germany didn't exist until the 1870s. Right. So the time of Bismarck. So, But one of the interesting things and one of the underlying themes of recent Jewish history is that to some extent, the type of anti-Semitism that led to the Shoah and the very Hitlerite brand of anti-Semitism was ultimately a result of the success of Jews in places like Berlin, Warsaw, Vienna, Budapest, Frankfurt, whatever, at assimilating, at becoming rapidly becoming instead of ghetto dwellers that nobody ever saw, speaking a language that nobody understood, they became fluent in German and they overwhelmed the so-called liberal professions, doctors, lawyers, university professors, journalists, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that in some of these cities, 40, 50, 60% of the categories of people like doctors and lawyers were Jews scared the general population and caused the birth of a very new type of anti-Semitism right around the same time that modern Germany was created, to which we will return next week. Sounds good, Tom. Uh, beginning of an interesting subject. We'll talk then. Thanks. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Abraham looks up at the heavens and says, Now, God, let me get this straight. You say we are the chosen people, and you want us to cut off the tips of what? That was the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of Two Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well. Now, a word of Torah. This week we read the portion of Lech Lecha, which includes God's great commandment to Abram. Lech Lecha me'artzecha me'moladetcha me'betavicha. Leave, go from your country, your homeland, the house of your father, to a land I will show you. It is the beginning of monotheism, the belief in one God. It will also prove to be the beginning of our connection to the land of Israel. It is a dramatic and powerful moment. The fascinating thing about Lech Lecha is not that God commands Avram, later to be renamed Avraham, to leave everything he has known. After all, if Abram is to create a new religion and remake belief in our world, he will need to leave polytheism in a pagan society that doesn't recognize the concept of supreme justice and divine power. If you want to live a life of goodness and blessing... Maybe you need to leave home to do it. Abraham picked up and left the sophisticated, morally challenged city-states of Babylon, his birthplace. He journeyed outward to find God, to found a new religion. That journey of differentiation was pivotal to all human history. If Abram doesn't just do what God commands, there will be no Judaism, or Christianity, or Islam, or monotheism, or really Western civilization. But what's most fascinating about Avram's actions in this week's Torah portion of Lechacha is that after God commanded Abram to go, he simply went without argument, controversy, or contradiction.
That strikes me as a very un-Jewish approach. After all, the essence of Jewish culture seems to be argument and discussion. If you were directed to leave everything you'd ever known, told to move somewhere unspecified, wouldn't you at least complain a little? And please don't think Abraham is incapable of arguing with God. In fact, he proves in next week's portion that he will argue and bargain with God to the last degree, as he does trying to defend the few righteous men of Sodom and Gomorrah. No, something else is at work here. The essential understanding we all have that sometimes you just have to move on. Leave what you know and embrace the journey. In order to fully realize who we can become, we must first leave who we have been. It's an exciting, exhilarating, daunting prospect. Dangerous, yet essential. And if we can choose to take the first steps, we, like Abraham, may reap rich rewards. When we come back on to Jewish, our guest this morning, the multi-talented Yair Rosenberg, explains just how the venerable publication The Atlantic chose to create his deep shtetl newsletter and tells some of the remarkable stories he's been able to follow as a journalist as he explores writing about Jews instead of for Jews. Find out the difference and exactly what that means when we return in a moment here on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Kanye West's anti-Semitic rants have finally come back to bite him. In the two weeks since he railed against Jews on Sean Hannity's Fox TV show and then on social media, he, his music, his shoe and clothing lines have all been dropped by The Gap, Balenciaga, Def Jam Records, Creative Artist Agency, Adidas, J.P. Morgan Chase, Foot Locker, Peloton, Vogue, TJ Maxx, the MRC TV and film production company that had completed but now won't release a documentary on him. And he was kicked off of Instagram and Twitter, finally. In addition, athletes his agency represented, including the L.A. Rams superstar Aaron Donald and Boston Celtics star Jalen Brown, have left his representation company. Each entity that dropped ties to Kanye, or Yi as he is now known, cited his vile anti-Semitism. Expect more corporations, he was a billionaire before all of this, to drop involvement with him, joining the many individuals who have cut ties with Mr. West and singled him out for disdain on social media. The L.A. Holocaust Museum invited Kanye West to tour it privately to raise his understanding and sensitivity to Jews and Judaism. He rejected the invitation, and his remaining followers flooded the museum with anti-Semitic posts and messages, as did some idiots on a freeway in L.A. You know, it's sad to see a prominent person espouse horrific anti-Semitism, but it is gratifying to see the near-immediate condemnation that has followed. It can almost make you believe anti-Semitism is no longer socially acceptable in America. Well, at least from rap stars. Maybe. In an unusual move, a chief rabbi of Russia has accused a senior defense official of anti-Semitic hate speech in connection with the war in Ukraine. 
Beryl Lazar, one of Russia's two chief rabbis, last week leveled the anti-Semitism accusation at Alexei Pavlov, secretary of the Security Council of Russia, a government committee of experts. In a newspaper column, Pavlov spoke of the need to perform desatanization in Ukraine. Pavlov claimed it has hundreds of neo-pagan cults. He included the Chabad-Lubavitch sect on a list of various religious groups he claimed prove his point. Rabbi Boruch Goren, the senior spokesperson for Lazar, wrote that Pavlov's words went farther than Stalinist propaganda of the 30s, that he feared the remark will go down in history as the beginning of a bad new era in Russia's relations with Jews. Rabbi Lazar's office responded to the column with an open letter to unspecified authorities in Russia, calling Pavlov's column a piece of vulgar anti-Semitism. Lazar, whose Chabad group has been walking a political tightrope ever since Russia's February invasion of Ukraine, said Russian Jews demand an immediate, unambiguous response by society and state authorities to Pavlov's statements, which Lazar termed dangerous. In both Russia and Ukraine, Chabad rabbis have established the movement as a very important Jewish entity. Many non-Jews there use the words Chabad and Chassids interchangeably with Jews. Lazar's Federation of Jewish Communities of Russia has enjoyed good relations up till now with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Lazar's office and Goran specifically have called out in the past what they regarded as anti-Semitism, or discrimination of Jews by state and justice officials in Russia. But such protests rarely included demands for action and have not occurred in the context of the war with Ukraine, which has prompted a tremendous crackdown in Russia on critics and perceived critics of Putin's war. Of the rabbis active in Russia's Jewish communities, about 90% are Chabad, as am I, Lazar wrote. Chabad is the antithesis of paganism. He added one might call Mr. Pavlov's logic nonsensical, vulgar anti-Semitism. But in fact, it is a new addition of the same old blood-soaked libels, and they are tremendously dangerous when said by a member of the Security Council of Russia. Lazar's letter follows reports that expressions of anti-Semitism have increased in state-controlled media in Russia, they had been taboo ever since Putin's rise to power more than 20 years ago. Well, he did something good. An article that appeared last month in a highbrow Russian daily called several well-known Jewish figures foreign agents. In addition, an op-ed on the site of a prestigious think tank included anti-Semitic language about Bernard-Henri Lévy, French-Jewish journalist who has written critically about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Lazar and the Chabad of Russia protested vocally against several administrative moves in recent years, including the banning of a book about a Jew who kept his faith while resisting pressure to convert to Christianity, and the expulsion of several foreign Chabad rabbis from Russia on various charges, including claims they posed a danger to national security. But the Ukraine war has changed the social climate profoundly in Russia, Critical media has been shut down amid a crackdown on what remained of free speech in Russia. As nationalist circles made a point of calling out so-called traitors, Lazar's Federations of Jewish Communities expressed its displeasure with the war. Goran publicly said it must stop. This approach distinguished Lazar's Chabad group from other state-recognized Christian and Muslim groups which have come out in favor of the war. 
The departure of more than 20,000 Jews from Russia this year, triple last year's numbers, about 16% of the 2020 estimated total number of the Jewish population of Russia, has not escaped Russian media and nationalist circles' notice. Most of it happened before last month's draft orders for 300,000 men to serve in Russia's stalled attack on Ukraine, in which, of course, tens of thousands of Russian troops have been killed. Against this background, Rabbi Gorin has joined others warning of a return of outspoken anti-Semitism to public discourse in Russia. Oppression of Jews and violence against Jews has been official policy in Russia for many decades. And that's the Two Jewish News of Jews Round the World. Welcome back to Two Jewish. Our guest this morning, Ayer Rosenberg, is at the Atlantic, where he writes the Deep Shtetl newsletter, covering, as he puts it, the intersection of politics, culture, and religion uh, from a Jewish perspective, but really from the Jews, not for the Jews, as he uh, said earlier in the show. He was a senior writer at Tablet Magazine, has written for a variety of other prominent publications, won a variety of journalism awards, and has a new album of Jewish music out. And he writes um, terrific journalism, by the way, on pretty much any topic you can think of and how it relates to or comes from Judaism in a way. Um, What's the most interesting story you have ever written, do you think, for you? (laughs) I mean, asking a journalist to uh, rank their own stories is like asking a parent to rank their children. Yes, Uh, but we do have favorites, even if we never admit it. That's just exactly there are two ways to approach that question to say there's no such thing or to say that people will never admit it. But either way, the answer is the same. You just can't give one. <laughs> uh, but um, I can say what are some stories that people might find interesting that they might not find elsewhere that they would, they could look up. Um, a couple off the top of my head, um, I did a long background story on the process behind translating Harry Potter into Yiddish, um, which I think is a really fun and interesting look into the ways that all translations are inherently interpretation, uh, all the sorts of choices Always. you have to make oh, when you yeah. translate uh, a cultural work uh, from one culture to another, say from English boarding school fiction to uh, Yiddish fiction. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but it's very much, you know, a well, you know, thinking about also. thinking about Hogwarts as a yeshiva changes everything, doesn't it? When, once you start talking in Yiddish about Hogwarts, it inevitably takes on that sort of sheen, and then you have to decide how far are you willing yeah. to let that go, or do you think that's not true to the story? And these are things that the translator has to think about. Um, so that's one example. I wrote a piece for my newsletter uh, about why Albert Einstein uh, wrote a glowing letter recommending that people uh, study and preserve the Talmud when we can pretty clearly demonstrate that Albert Einstein couldn't read the Talmud. He didn't know any uh, Talmud, leads, yeah. And that leads you down this amazing rabbit hole of how Albert Einstein learned about Jewish things and a particular rabbi that he was friends with for 20 years, an Orthodox rabbi, uh, that led to this letter and many other Jewish projects on Einstein's part. Um, and then another piece I did for the newsletter is about an Orthodox Jewish character who pops up in the background of a very famous cult sci-fi show called Firefly, just one of the 
best-selling single seasons of television history. Um, and in one episode, they go to a space post office and the space mailman is an Orthodox Jew. And you can tell because he's wearing not only a yarmulke, but also tzitzit, the ritual fringes. And it's very impressive and it's sort of very, pretty authentic and it also has nothing to do with the story and it's never remarked upon. Um, and I always wondered why that happened and why did the writers choose that and how did the actor get that role? Um, and I tracked down the actor and I talked to the people who made the show and it took me like eight years and it's a really interesting story. Um, the actor himself wasn't Jewish, but he had learned a tremendous amount about Judaism because of his study of the Christian, of the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. And he actually came in and uh, beat out a bunch of Jewish actors to get this to, role. To play the Orthodox then, Jewish postmaster. Exactly. Um, and really a fascinating story about how people can really inhabit a culture that's different than theirs and do it respectfully. Um, and then also what happened to this actor um, and a few other things. And, you know, it's, I don't want to give that away either. Um, but, you know, this is the sort of stuff that I'm very fortunate uh, and I feel privileged to be able to write about and that people are willing to publish me because these are just very interesting and fascinating to me. Um, but I get to share those obsessions with, with a large audience. Tell us about uh, your foray into music. It's not really a foray. It's something you've been interested in for a while. Uh, tell us about your new album. So, yeah, for the last seven years, I've been working on this music project on the side, um, which uh, is a set of compositions um, for Shabbat. And... Uh, so you've got your Shalom Aleichem and Lachad Dodi, some songs that people will know from the heard in different Jewish contexts. But these are new, more modern melodies to very old lyrics. Um, and I compose them and I sing them um, with you know some 20 musicians backing me up and two amazing uh, vocalists doing all of the harmonies and a producer who puts it all together. Um, and it took a long time to do um, because I didn't actually have any clue how to make music when I started. Um, I music runs in my family. My grandfather was a Hasidic composer and some of his songs are still sung to this day. Uh, but I don't play any instruments. I don't read music. Um, and so I thought I had these melodies in my head, but I didn't know how to share them really with anyone. And I thought I couldn't because I didn't have those skills. Uh, but over time, I learned that you can actually find really good creative collaborators who are better at this than you. And they can do the pieces that you can't. And then you put it all together and you do have something you can share. Uh, it took a long time. Um, but, and we wanted to put it out in 2020. We ran a, a crowdfunder and uh, not necessarily the best time to run a crowdfunder. For no, a you know, that yeah. COVID thing did not encourage such We projects. launched it very prophetically in March, 2020, the world's worst point to do this. Um, and given that it did pretty well considering, yeah. um, but then we couldn't make it because uh, we were supposed to just do it in the months after the crowdfunder, but then everything shut down. Um, and it certainly wasn't safe uh, to ask my fellow vocalist to come in to do the harmonies in the studio. Um, and so it sort of left us for one year in limbo. And then as soon as everyone was vaccinated and there was a well, um, we were able to get uh, safely into a studio and start finishing off the songs. Um, and so that's how now the, the songs are available for folks to find on all of their streaming services. Um, uh, you know, wherever you get your music, you can find it. It's called Az Yashir, um, Songs for Shabbat. And uh, the real hope with this was not, you know, to turn me into a second career rock star or wedding singer, right? This is not the point of this, uh, this, this endeavor. I'm going to keep doing uh, the writing that I'm doing. But it was to give people easy to sing, modern, um, fun melodies to share um, in the Shabbat context in their Jewish lives. 
Um, and so that could be at a summer camp, that could be at a Shabbat table, that could be in a synagogue, it could be somewhere else. Um, and that's why I chose Shabbat because that gives us a lot the the best chance of using words that people already know, some of them. Um, and then we purposely made the melodies easy to pick up and remember and sing along. They're likely to get stuck in your head and that's on purpose, right? There are different types of musical styles and this one is very much influenced by folk and other styles that are made to be sung communally and easily inhabited by people with all sorts of musical backgrounds. Um, and I would like to add all sorts of Jewish backgrounds um, because I think that um, although Jews have many divisions like we discussed and uh, many factions, um, you'll find that Jews yeah. from very different communities know some of the same melodies. They don't always know that they know the same melodies, but I, as a reporter who travel in those circles, can discover, like when I'm in, you know, this Reform synagogue or that Orthodox community, that they have some of those same songs. Um, that communities that otherwise don't speak to each other sing to sing, each other. Sing the same they tunes, sing, sing the same melodies exactly. for Shabbat. So yeah, absolutely. Composing a Shabbat song felt like a way to bridge people that way and to bring people together who otherwise wouldn't be together. And I've been gratified so far since it started rolling out to have heard from people in very different Jewish backgrounds and communities um, that they've appreciated the music. Um, and of course, I have non-Jewish readers of my newsletter who have enjoyed the music. And as someone who was influenced, as I said, by non-Jewish music, as well as Jewish music in creating this uh, album, um, I think that that's great. And I think that uh, um, I think a lot of people would love to hear more from Jewish music, including people who are not Jewish themselves. You know, I, I'll never forget, I, I was a cantor before I became a rabbi. I'm still a cantor, of course. And I went, being at a cantor's assembly convention, which was the conservative movement I was part of, and uh, yeah. they had, I think the conference was in Israel that year, and they had different people, cantors from all around the world get up to sing how they, however it was they sang the Micha Mocha on Shabbat morning. And, you know, one from Turkey and one from Italy and one from New York and, you know, from Australia, whomever. And everybody got up and said, you know, I actually use that same melody. <laughs> so it was yeah. like, it was great. I mean, it, 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 yes, it would have been more interesting to get some new tunes, but it was actually much more memorable knowing that we were connected by music. So I hope that your album serves that role. Um, it's charming and we're going to hear some cuts from it. We've heard some already here on Too Jewish. Um, I need to change from such a positive subject to something you've been writing about quite a lot lately, which is anti-Semitism. Um, tell us, you know, uh, not just Kanye West, but but sort of your reflections on where do you think things are right now in the anti-Semitism and why do you think you've been writing about it so much lately? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I like to write about anti-Semitism, um, despite the fact that this often becomes the thing you get known for because people care about controversy. Um, I end up having to write a fair amount about anti-Semitism because of things like the ones you've mentioned. Um, but to me, of course, what's the most important thing, why do you write about anti-Semitism? Because you want to stop anti-Semitism. You want to lead people away from it um, so that there's more space for people to be Jewish and not have to worry about things like that. And then you can think about the music and the translation of Harry Potter into Yiddish, right? And the cantorial stuff and all of the wonderful things that have been Jewish life and living all this time. Um, and anti-Semitism is what gets in the way. It's what reduces Jews to something that they're not um, and diminishes uh, Jewish life. Um, and so you know, I worry about anti-Semitism and that's why I feel it's important to write about it. And I also try to make sure that when my workers are reading my newsletter, that there's a good ratio of not anti-Semitism, positive right. Jewish content, 
to the negative anti-Semitism content uh, so that they understand that Judaism is not this experience of oppression, right? It's this experience of living, right? In spite of things like this oppression. Um, so that's, that's, that's sort of how I look at it. Um, it's also how I stay sort of sane when I cover these pretty dark stories, right? Whether it's, you know, you have to go to a place like Pittsburgh after a massacre right. or you're writing about um, the latest online controversy with this or that famous person or celebrity voicing ignorant uh, ideas about Jews. Um, I do think in practice that most people remain uh, favorably disposed towards Jews or certainly not anti-Semitic. They just don't know very much about Jews because although this can be hard for Jews to always realize, you know, because you might live in a Jewish community and know a bunch of Jews, but the average person doesn't encounter a Jew in their daily life um, because Jews are 2% of the American population, 0.2% of the world population. And so you're basically only going to learn about us from what you see on TV or what you read on the internet. And that can be a very dicey way to learn about any minority. Um, and so I find that the more I write about these things, the more I get messages from people saying, oh, that explains something I didn't understand or answered questions I was afraid to ask. And I think it's important that we approach these conversations in a sort of spirit of generosity and recognize that we all have a lot of blind spots about communities we haven't encountered. Uh, the Jews are that for many people, but I think we've all had those communities for ourselves. And when you're filling in blind spots, to do it generously and charitably, and the same way you'd like to be treated when you're filling in a blind spot. Um, and I think a lot of people um, are allies of Jews in this fight or will be, right, if they're brought into the conversation, even if they start out with some misconceptions. Um, and certainly writing in a general interest newsletter that goes out to a general interest publication, um, I, I try to uh, be open to answering those questions and create the space for people to ask them without feeling like they're a bad person for wondering. Um, one of the things I've always noticed that if you look at the analytics behind, say, Jewish media sites, I have seen and talked to others, um, you will find that one of the questions that leads people a lot uh, to Jewish media websites is they type into Google, why do people hate Jews? Right? Because they want to know. <laughs> they don't hate Jews themselves, but they are aware that lots of people say nasty things about Jews and they're just confused and they don't understand. Uh, it's a very basic question. Um, and I try to uh, recognize that a lot of people are just confused. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think that also is helpful psychologically because sometimes I think people take all anti-Semitism and put it into the same bucket like of this sort of intentional, nefarious, uh, implacable force when there's a lot of stuff that just stems from ignorance or confusion, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always like to say um, ignorance is not hate. It's just ignorance. And if you can answer it and you can speak to it, you can change a lot of people's minds. Um, but not everybody's. You know, it's funny. Exactly. I, I, I share with you the struggle because I... I never really want to talk about anti-Semitism. I never wanted to teach a class in anti-Semitism. I taught a class in everything about Judaism. I avoided that class, teaching that class for years. People kept asking me for it. I finally taught it, and I realized it's valuable to understand it um, because it's a factor. But, boy, you just want to focus on how great it is to be Jewish and how interesting it is to be Jewish, not uh, why people hate Jews. Yeah, 
Yair, I want to thank you for a great visit here on Two Jewish. Where can people go to learn more about you, about your work, and about your music? Yeah, so you can find uh, my newsletter at The Atlantic, which is theatlantic.com slash deep-shtetl, S-H-T-E-T-L. If you search for Yair Rosenberg and Deep Shtetl, pretty sure it's the only combination of those words uh, (laughs) that exists on the internet, so you're likely to find it. Um, and then for the music, uh, the album is called Azia Shir, A-Z-Y-A-S-H-I-R. And um, it's on Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon Music, and you can buy the MP3s or put it in your streaming library. Uh, it's all the places you can get your music. Um, you can also go to motherwest.com, which is the studio that produced it and the label, and uh, you can buy physical CDs if that's how you like to get your media. Um, we have a simple link to find it in one place, which is uh, bit.ly slash And that will give you all the different links you need. Um, and I'm also available on you know, Twitter and social media. And as I mentioned, happy to answer people's questions. And uh, I, you know, whether you're Jewish or you're not, um, I, those conversations are often the most uh, valuable that I have, whether they appear publicly or not. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest, get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Shoshana Nambe, the first Ugandan woman rabbinical student from the Abu Yudaya community and the first reform rabbinical student and the author of a new Jewish children's book on Sukkot. Don't forget to join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and available on our Facebook page. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org for information about how to join our fabulous congregation. Our play out this morning comes from our guest, Yair Rosenberg, his fun version of Shalom Aleichem for Shabbat. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a healthy week and a week we pray profoundly of peace. Shalom Aleichem, Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.